From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. Puerto Rico has been in the news a lot in the last few years, but often missing from the headlines about hurricanes and political scandals is critical context about the island's legal status. Puerto Rico is what's called an unincorporated U.S. territory. It's controlled by the U.S. government, yet its residents don't enjoy the full protections of the Constitution. That's in part because of a series of century-old Supreme Court decisions called the Insular Cases. Recently, the ACLU asked the Supreme Court to overrule those decisions. As the ACLU writes in its brief, the Insular Cases, quote, rest on outmoded and pernicious racist assumptions that are plainly unacceptable today. Here to discuss how America came to legalize the second-class status of Puerto Rico is Adriel Cepeda Derriex, a staff attorney with the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Thanks very much for joining us, Adriel. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Emerson. Thanks for having me today. The Supreme Court is hearing a case on October 15th about Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight Board that was created by Congress to respond to the island's financial crisis. But our brief really deals with some of the deeper issues about Puerto Rico's legal status vis-a-vis the United States. By way of introduction, can you orient us a bit? What is the legal and constitutional status of Puerto Rico, and how is it different from the 50 states and other territories? Sure. So Puerto Rico is what's known uh, from the insular cases as an unincorporated territory. And the insular cases are the series of decisions the Supreme Court issued at the beginning of the 20th century. Puerto Rico is not a state. It's a territory. And the United States has never just been states. It's always had territories. But for the first 120 years of the country, as the United States expanded west into that territory, the understanding was that the Constitution, quote unquote, followed the flag. The Constitution applied to those territories the same way as it did to the states as the country grew. So, for example, in a case in 1879, the Supreme Court says that Congress cannot pass a law that prohibits the free exercise of the Mormon religion in the Utah Territory, even though it's not a state. So the insular cases changed that assumption that the Constitution would automatically follow the flag. And they did that by creating this distinction between incorporated territories and unincorporated territories. Incorporated territories, as the Supreme Court says, are those that are understood to be on the path to statehood. And uh, unincorporated territories, such as Puerto Rico, are those that might not become states, or Congress has not said they will become states. And they all happen to be the ones that the United States has just acquired in 1898 following the war it just had with Spain, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. So taken together, the cases are uh, viewed to create this distinction of how the uh, these overseas territories were or were not part of the United States for certain constitutional provisions. In terms of the day-to-day governance of Puerto Rico, what does it mean to be an unincorporated territory? That, so it gets a little hazy. In practice, Puerto Rico has a great deal of autonomy and, and rules its own affairs by itself. But as, for example, with the, the PROMESA board, with the current financial oversight board that manages Puerto Rico's affairs, it means that under Congress's territorial powers, Congress can still pass a law that would supersede anything that the Puerto Rico legislature or elected representatives could do. So it all flows back to Congress. And so that's an important distinction, right? Because the rights that Puerto Ricans have are from Congress, not from the Constitution directly. Absolutely. To be clear, Congress has power over all territories, 
whether or not they're incorporated. But it is still assumed that the Constitution will apply, quote unquote, fully in incorporated territories where it might not necessarily be the case in unincorporated territories. That's coming from the insular cases. The sharpest example, one of the insular cases says that the constitutional right to a jury trial does not apply in Puerto Rico. Now, in practice, that may not matter so much anymore because Puerto Rico itself has a constitutional right to jury trial under the Puerto Rico Constitution, but that federal right is not recognized there. But you're absolutely right. I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born in Puerto Rico, but my U.S. citizenship might come from uh, a statute that Congress passed in 1917, not necessarily from the 14th Amendment. That's always been a little hazy and very unresolved. And if you look at other unincorporated territories, such as American Samoa, well, people born there are U.S. nationals, even though by any means American Samoa is under U.S. control and might therefore be entitled to birthright citizenship. I bring this up because this is actually a case that's working its way up the, the Ninth Circuit at the moment. Interesting. Well, even for someone who has deep expertise in these issues to describe it as hazy and unresolved, it's quite clear that what we're asking the Supreme Court to do is to resolve once and for all, throw out the insular cases. But before we talk about our particular brief and the arguments that we make, I'm interested in this distinction that you talked about between unincorporated and incorporated and those that are on a path to statehood and those that are not. We understand that race played some role in this, obviously, a prominent role. But how did territories end up in one bucket or the other? What was the decision process? What were the political dynamics deciding that Puerto Rico should be in one bucket? And for instance, a place like Hawaii might be on a path to statehood. The reasons why each of the territories ends up as they are are pretty distinct to them. And in in of themselves, follow very different paths. The Supreme Court decides that Alaska is a, an incorporated territory as of 1905, I believe, but it takes it another 50 years or so to become a state. The biggest difference, though, that the insular cases just very explicitly point to is, as you say, very race-based, and that's part of what we attack in our brief. So the insular cases come, as I said, at the end of the Spanish-American War, when the United States has now annexed overseas territories, overseas island territories for the first time. And this kicks off a great deal of soul-searching and very public national debate over whether the United States can and even should, consistent with the Constitution, hold these places as colonies. We're at the peak of the quote-unquote age of empire, Britain, Germany, Italy, France, everyone is carving up the rest of the world, and the United States is coming into its own as a world power. But within that context, you have some very loaded racial ideas. The white man's burden, for example, is about the United States assuming control of the Philippines. And, you know, just five years earlier, you have the Supreme Court deciding Plessy versus Ferguson, which very famously says that the Constitution is quite all right with laws that keep whites and black citizens separate but equal. Mm -hmm. One of the quotes from the brief, I think, really illustrates this. You say that the insular cases explicitly rest on anachronistic and deeply offensive racial and cultural assumptions. The decision sought to draw a distinction between a limited category of, quote, fundamental rights that could be extended to non-English speaking peoples inhabiting the new U.S. insular possessions and a broader set of rights particular to Anglo-American traditions, which would not. 
I'm interested in hearing this comparison between Plessy versus Ferguson, and you also bring up Korematsu, the famous Supreme Court decision that okayed the Japanese internment during World War II. We look back at Plessy versus Ferguson, we look back at Korematsu as these massive mistakes, pretty much unanimously, at least until the current administration, where you hear some people saying that Korematsu was okay. In general, those are sort of consensus cases that need to be relegated to the dustbin of history. But we don't have the same public understanding or consciousness about the insular cases. But we're asking the Supreme Court to do something very similar, throw these out altogether. Yes, absolutely. We argue that they are of a kind with uh, Plessy versus Ferguson and Jim Crow segregation. When you look at these cases, other than the fact that they ignore notions of a limited government, the idea that Congress cannot just hold territory indefinitely without granting it full protection under the Constitution, uh, you still have to grapple with the fact that the only reason the court gives for that exception is that the people who lived there, the people who lived in Puerto Rico and the Philippines, were different. They were darker, for sure, but also spoke Spanish, were not Anglos, spoke other languages. And these racist views are very openly stated in the insular cases. They're not mincing words in the leading case, Downs versus Bidwell, Justice White expresses concern over admitting unknown islands peopled with an uncivilized race to the United States. In another concurrence, Justice Brown says that Congress should be wary of extending the Constitution to those territories because it would face troubles that it would not face in territories occupied by, quote unquote, people of the same race, so white people. Um, and uh, uh, 21 years later, in what's understood to be the last uh, cap on the insular cases, in a case titled Balzac versus Puerto Rico, Chief Justice William Howard Taft, former President William Howard Taft, former Governor of the Philippines William Howard Taft, says that even the fact Congress has by then afforded or extended citizenship to Puerto Rico is not enough to incorporate hmm. Puerto Rico. The operative distinction, he says, is because Puerto Ricans lived in, quote unquote, compact and ancient communities that were alien to Anglo-Saxon traditions. And that sets up a distinction between Alaska, which in another prior case had been deemed to have been incorporated by virtue of the fact that Congress had given its citizenship. Well, the quotes from the justices and the litigants in the insular cases are sort of stomach-churning in their outward racism. But as you noted, this was a public debate. This was a real soul-searching among Americans. And, you know, there are all these examples from all sorts of public commentators, Mark Twain and all sorts of folks who were debating whether or not the U.S. should incorporate these folks. And one thing that's interesting is that the people who were for empire were doing so on racist grounds, but also many of the people who were against empire were also doing so on racist grounds because they didn't want to further pollute the United States with these foreigners. Oh, absolutely. Two things there. One is whenever I have the opportunity to go back to these cases, it always catches me off guard just how big a deal these cases were at the time at least compared to the fact that there's so little known at the moment. The New York World, which uh, I believe was uh, Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, wrote of Downs versus Bidwell at the time that no case had ever attracted wider attention, wow. which is a wild thing to think about when uh, Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson had already been decided. But it makes sense that these cases come at a, at a pivotal moment in the country 
when the country is fiercely debating whether it can look outward. It's been expanding within its bounds for 120 years. And now with the civil war in the rearview mirror, it's coming uh, into its own as a power. So there's, yeah, the very difficult question of whether the United States can set out on a path uh, that leads it to be the, the power that it is now. And the second thing is, yes, both sides were relying on the idea that the people of these territories were racially inferior to either defend or detract from the idea of the United States becoming an imperialist power. Here, there's a very strange quirk where the Dred Scott case has very strange relevance. And the context of the insular cases might be the one time you'll hear Dred Scott spoken about in something even approaching approving terms. And that's because the pre-Civil War debates over slavery hinged in great part on whether Congress had the power to prohibit slavery in the territories, Hmm. whether Congress had to permit or even protect slavery there. So defenders of slavery argued that the Constitution followed the flag Hmm. and that because the Constitution, as it applied to the states, not only allowed slavery, but limited Congress's power to do anything about it, then uh, Congress could not do anything about slavery in those territories. So, you know, 40 years later or 30 years later, when you're arguing the insular cases, then it was the Democrats, the the Democratic members of Congress, mainly from the South, who are also anti-imperialist in many explicit ways because they don't want to add colored people, more colored people to the union. And they're saying we've already resolved that the Constitution follows the flag, and we've already resolved that if we go there, we're going to have to give give these people rights. We're going to have to give them citizenship, and they're going to have to be part of the polity. In the insular cases, the Supreme Court sort of splits the difference. Mm. It punts the question and gives Congress the power to go into these territories and not necessarily force their hand into bringing them into the United States. It lets them own them, a quote that gets thrown about, is it makes them foreign in a domestic sense. That's a direct quote from one of the insular cases. That's really fascinating and helpful background. And the history is indeed quite complicated, full of amazingly strange bedfellows. But bringing us back to the case that's before the court now, they have to decide the status of the PROMESA Financial Oversight Board. We don't really take a position as the ACLU which way the court should decide that particular issue, but we do ask them to throw out the insular cases. What happens if they throw them out? If they throw the insular cases out, it does not necessarily do anything in, in terms of the case. We've we've asked the Supreme Court to do what it did not long ago in the Trump versus Hawaii travel ban case, where it went out of its way to say that the Korematsu case that legitimized the internment of over 100,000 U.S. citizens of Japanese ancestry was wrongly decided and and toss it to the side in great part because it just taints the constitutional framework by relying so explicitly and egregiously on racist assumptions. The case, as you say, is uh, a challenge to the financial oversight board that currently handles Puerto Rico's financial affairs. And plaintiffs have challenged it saying that the members of the board were wrongly appointed under the constitution appointments clause. Hmm. You know, the PROMESA law sets up several lists that Congress chooses the members of, and then the president can choose members from those lists. So Mm -hmm. the challengers are saying that because these members are, quote unquote, officers of the United States, the appointments clause directs that they should instead be appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate as any officer of the United States would be. 
Just to interject, it's notable that when you were talking about how ProMesa was created, you didn't mention Puerto Rico or Puerto Rican people at any point. This was created by Congress and populated by the president. Absolutely. Well, I do believe the governor plays some role in choosing the members, but that's absolutely right. I mean, the ProMesa board passes the Puerto Rico budget or at least signs off on the budget. It is a very controversial board because, in fact, it does take away governance from Puerto Rico. Now, I want to be very clear that the ACLU takes no position on PROMESA or on the merits of the case. Where the insular cases do come in is because they give Congress extra broad powers when it legislates to unincorporated territories. Certain parties have said that the Appointments Clause does not post a limit on Congress in passing the PROMESA law because Hmm. Congress rested the PROMESA law on its territorial powers. So if the Supreme Court does repudiate the insular cases going out of its way as it did in Trump v. Hawaii, what impact would that have on Puerto Rico's status vis-a-vis the United States and or its governance? Would people in Puerto Rico feel or see a difference? question over whether Puerto Rico should be independent, should be a state, is one that is also controversial. It's been voted on by the people of Puerto Rico several times. uh, And ultimately, it's one that the residents of Puerto Rico need to decide. But one thing that's very clear is that the insular cases, and namely the incorporation slash unincorporation doctrine, just perpetuates a sort of second-class citizenship. As I said, I was born in Puerto Rico. That makes me a U.S. citizen, but that means different things when I'm in the mainland or when I'm in Puerto Rico. And I also like to point out it means different things when you go to Puerto Rico. It affects anyone in Puerto Rico. It makes geography determine the value of U.S. citizenship. The insular cases are terrible in many ways. We've already discussed how racist they are. But one of the main ways has to be that they include language to the effect of saying that only fundamental rights may apply. Hmm. And uh, first of all, it's unclear what that means. Second, the Supreme Court has already walked that back somewhat in the 1950s, well after the United States has already embarked on its manifest destiny idea of going outside of the shores of the United States. These prosecutions for people who live in U.S. bases come up. And the cases that the Supreme Court looks to, which are the insular cases, And in that context, the Supreme Court expressly says that whatever that doctrine was, meaning the incorporation doctrine, is, quote unquote, very dangerous Hmm. because it lets the political branches decide when the Bill of Rights applies and that the idea that certain protections will apply or not when it's convenient undermines the basis of a written constitution. This is in the 1957, I believe. And in that case, the Supreme Court says the insular cases doctrine should not be given any further expansion. Hmm. So I should point out that one of the first things we argue is that that is the high watermark of the insular cases. Wherever they are after 1922, which is the last insular case, is where they are, period. Mm -hmm. And they should not be given any additional expansion. To now say that the insular cases somehow affect whether the appointments clause matters or or should play a role in this case is to give them that expansion that the Supreme Court has already warned against. And I'll say that even if the Supreme Court has said that they should not be given additional expansion, that has not stopped lower courts from latching on to them, to that shorthand, 
to say that certain rights don't apply in the territories or apply differently, in essence using the insular cases as a lens to view the rest of the Constitution writ large. One very troubling and important example in 2016, after the Obergefell versus Hodges decision, um, where the Supreme Court uh, uh, made marriage equality a constitutional right, uh, a district judge in Puerto Rico refused to enter a very pro forma mandate of the First Circuit against the Puerto Rico ban on same-sex marriages, saying that the incorporation doctrine was what mattered in terms of whether that right had been incorporated or adopted to Puerto Rico. The First Circuit reversed that very quickly, thankfully, but it still gives courts this shorthand that can be very troubling. And as I said, in two cases working their way up the courts at the moment, plaintiffs from American Samoa are saying that they are entitled to birthright citizenship because the 14th Amendment Citizenship Clause says that people born in the United States or subject to its jurisdiction are U.S. citizens by birthright. So the courts have relied on the insular cases to say that the Citizenship Clause does not apply fully to American Samoa. The ways in which the deeply racist and problematic logic of the insular cases creep up is is really interesting. But I, I want to take us from the legal sphere into sort of how Puerto Rico exists in our society and in our culture. You're, you said, born and raised in Puerto Rico. What does it feel like now to see, you know, the president of the United States consistently denigrating Puerto Rico for corruption, for its political leadership, for its dependency on U.S. aid, even blaming Puerto Rico for its weather and proposing trading it for Greenland? I mean, we've talked about the ways in which these century-old cases rear their heads in all these different ways. But Puerto Rico, in some ways, is getting a lot more headlines than it did 10 years ago, probably. Where do you see this going? Do you see any positive trend lines, negative trend lines? So at least with regards to Hurricane Maria, which was very sad to see, and the response that was uh, very sad to see, um, not great. (laughs) But something that would go away if the Supreme Court just takes our brief on its word and gets rid of the incorporation distinction is the troubling effect that this distinction has had in letting Congress, Washington, and frankly, the general uh, American public in many ways forget about its territories. Hmm. By keeping the territories at a, at a constitutional distance, Washington or Congress has, has been able to essentially forget about many of these questions surrounding them. And, you know, we've spoken a little bit about political status and the questions regarding um, statehood or not. Again, if those are to be resolved, it is very clear that the people in the territories should have a say and should have a vote. But these cases, this doctrine sort of stands in the way. Neil Weir of a group called Equally American, who also wrote an amicus brief in this case, and the group brings impact litigation surrounding the territories, has made the very valid point that you would not have much of the civil rights movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, for example, without Brown versus Board of Education. This is another parallel to the Plessy versus Ferguson doctrine. So it's not a stretch to say that you need to get rid of the insular cases and this idea that territories can be kept, as one of the dissenting justices put it, at a distant shade from the United States for there to be movement any which way on the constitutional status of the territories. Well, in a very real way, the idea that we have these territories runs counter to the American identity as anti-imperialist and anti-colonial. Uh, certainly, certainly. And that was a, a big part of those debates in 
that are going on in, in the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s are very, very focused on what kind of country are we? Can we do this? You know, we know the, the European countries that are carving up the rest of the world are monarchies and don't have a written constitution, but that's not what we are. We have a written constitution that defines what the U.S. government can do and cannot do. The national government can and cannot do. And, and uh, uh, there was a, a strong argument <laughs> that sort of got tossed to the side that um, the United States could not, within that constitutional tradition, um, go beyond its shores and keep territories indefinitely. Well, one of the things you just brought up is that the insular cases were always meant, as problematic as they were, they were always meant to be temporary. And now here we are 100 years later, still stuck with them. I want to maybe just finish with a question about what you would like to see taken up next. Let's say that you are and the rest of your colleagues are successful in getting the Supreme Court to uh, disavow the insular cases. A lot of our listeners are sort of younger folks who are interested in civil rights and civil liberties, specifically thinking about the next generation of Puerto Rican activists. What are the kinds of legal, civil rights, civil liberties issues that you think really need more attention and um, you encourage your compatriots and your colleagues to take up? Well, as I suggested earlier, getting rid of the incorporation doctrine would not mean that Puerto Rico would not be under congressional control, for lack of a better word. It would still be a territory. And the people of Puerto Rico would still lack representation or equal representation in the government that decides the laws for them, for example. And that's, again, maybe that's by virtue of being a territory. You can look to D.C. on that. I mean, it, it's very much the same. So you would still have the question of whether people of Puerto Rico want to keep their current arrangement, want to become independent, want to be a state. And that's something that it would, again, be up to them to, to decide. But uh, hopefully Congress would be paying more attention. You know, the last time some movement happened in Congress, I believe, was in 2014. And there were resolutions to have a referendum that Congress would look to. But those, I believe, died in committee. So that would obviously be a major step. Other than that, you have several civil rights issues, just like you do in, in any state of the in any of the 50 states. I mean, we just saw in the protests going on down there as the residents of Puerto Rico protested against their governor. Right. There were several clashes between the police and protesters, and those don't go unnoticed. You know, there's work to do down there in that regard as well. Well, thank you very much, Adriel, for all of your work on this really amazingly powerful Supreme Court brief. We hope that the Supreme Court justices read it and take it to heart and that we can once and for all relegate the insular cases where they deserve to be, which is long ago in our history. Thank you so much for all your great work and thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Emerson. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. <laughs>